18. This is our last week in 2 Samuel. My wife is skeptical. Uh, I'm not going to finish 2 Samuel. It was never the intent. Of course, it was never my intent to get this far. But if you want to keep reading how David's life uh, winds up and some of the summarization of his life, you can just keep reading past chapter 18. But this, figure, this uh, closes up the big episode uh, between David and his son Absalom. Because it's the very last week, uh, I realize... You could be lost. I'm going to give you a three-page summary, a three-screen summary of what we've covered and how it is now culminating in this final event of Absalom's death. It reads like this. After King David reached the height of his power, he commits sin against Bathsheba and then against her husband Uriah. You will find that in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Though his sin is, quote, put away by by God, the prophet Nathan announces that he and his family will suffer disciplinary measures. From now on, wherever David turns, he will come face to face with the consequences of his sin and in his own home and family. Now, David's sin against Bathsheba and Uriah was a, a sexual sin and then it was a bloody sin of he had Uriah killed. So those two uh, categories of sin really play out in David's family based upon David's own sin in chapter 11. Second screen. Various members of David's family commit immoral sins, and soon afterward, blood flows in his family. David acknowledges and accepts God's chastening hand as the primary and just cause for his own anguish. In chapter 15, David's long-estranged son Absalom conspires against his father to be king. David flees Jerusalem when he learns of the conspiracy, along with his household, so he's leaving with his, himself with his household. He leaves Jerusalem with some friends, and his royal guard. Those were very interesting chapters, and the estrangement that David has with Absalom it has to do with Absalom killing David's oldest son, Amnon, who had committed sexual immorality. And David really didn't do anything about it other than he uh, was bitter towards his son, Absalom. And that estrangement lasted nine years, uh, upwards of nine years until Absalom's death. For five years, David really didn't say boo to Absalom. Uh, For the first three years, Absalom lived outside of the country. And then he was brought back to Jerusalem, where he lived estranged from his father, where his father didn't speak to him for another two years. So for five years, there was no speaking of David to his son Absalom. When David finally did speak to him and gave him some sort of a a blessing, a very superficial blessing, Absalom then felt the freedom to move about more freely in Jerusalem and he began conspiring against his father to be king, which culminated in uh, this treasonous act of declaring himself to be king, David flees. Last screen. In chapter 18... David's troops engage and decisively defeat Absalom's larger civilian army. Attempting to escape, Absalom rides his mule into the bough of a tree and is helplessly suspended there by his head. Ignoring David's instructions, Joab plunges three, my Bible says, I forget now, javelins or something. That's really overstating the case. They're in a forest. Joab plunges three branches, their sticks, their limbs, something that fell out of the tree, came out of the tree. He plunges three of those into Absalom's abdomen, which is translated as heart because it's all part of this, your midsection. Ten of Joab's armor bearers finish Absalom off. Joab calls off the battle. Absalom is put in a pit and covered by a heap of rocks which is a sad contrast to the monument he has already built for himself. 
That's all that we've covered going through 2 Samuel beginning in chapter 11 and now we're finishing up in chapter 18. There's only one part that remains to to play out and that would be reporting this news back to King David who is back on the other side, well, they're all on the west, the eastern side of the Jordan, but he didn't go into battle with his troops because his troops, it's really been a long-standing practice. David is the prince, he's the Lord's anointed, and they don't want to risk David's life, so he's behind the scenes waiting for word, and now word has to go back that his explicit word to deal gently, or command, deal gently with the young man Absalom, was not obeyed. Absalom is in fact dead. So that's where we're at. Whoops, I should, I should uh, read those verses. 19 to 23. So if you are in chapter 18, follow along in your Bible the best you can. It reads like this. Then Ahimahaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry the news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news, because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go tell the king what you've seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimahaz... The son of Zadok said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he, Joab, said to him, Run. Then Ahimahaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. That's the first part. So, Joab To refresh your memory, he's the commander of David's army. He has been for decades. Uh, Joab is also King David's nephew, which means Joab is actually a cousin of Absalom, and and so Joab slew his cousin, who'd committed treason against his uncle, uh, which was Absalom's... This is confusing when I... You get the family relationships, right? It's very family, a very tight-knit family situation. So that's who Joab is that's giving the orders. He's commander of David's army. Ahimaaz says, let me run and carry news to the king. The Lord has delivered him from the hands of, hand of his enemies. Why does Ahimaaz want to tell the king? It's a surprising amount of commentators that, and I don't know if it's the majority opinion, but it might be, a surprising amount of commentators say Ahimahaz wants to report to the king. He's, uh, he's one of the young messengers. When David fleed, fleed from Jerusalem, and he's waiting to hear what Absalom's up to, and David's got a few loyalists back in Jerusalem, and when they find out something, they're going to send word by these messengers that knows where David is, and they'll give him a heads up as to what's coming. That's Ahimahaz. He's one of those messengers. He's the high priest, one of the high priest's sons. He wants to go. The, the answer that is often given is he wants to comfort the king when he finds out his son is dead. He wants to provide consolation. Would you rather hear good news or bad news from, from somebody who, who dearly loves and cares for you as opposed to somebody that just shows up at your door and knocks on the door and gives you bad news. That's, that's a very common answer. I don't think it's at all right. Because the news that he wants to deliver, he thinks it's good news. The Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. The news that he's carrying isn't so that when he hears this news, now I can comfort you, I can console you, uh, I, will, I will weep with you, weep with those who weep. The news that he's carrying, so far as he knows, is great news. Why would he think that? His son is dead. Absalom is dead. And I think the answer is, Ahimaaz knows that David's been estranged from his son for nine years. There's there's not a close relationship at all. David only refers to Absalom as the young man not in any terms of endearment or tenderness, I think he has no way of knowing or realizing 
how the news will strike David. Let me talk about that word news for just a moment, which is used a lot. Joab says, you're not going to carry this news. Another day you'll carry the news, but not, you're, not this news. That word news is used 30 times in the Old Testament. It means to bring news, especially pertaining to military encounters. So it's a word that's used in the Old Testament. It particularly has to do with what happened in a battle, what happened in a war. That's how the word is used. Uh, there's actually a few Bible commentators that say it is always good news. I'm not sure they're Bible commentators, they're preachers. Preachers sometimes are a little slipperier with the text. And sometimes preachers, in, in reading what they preached, will say, this is the word that when somebody brings you news, it's good. Because that's what the word means. But that's not true. I can show you texts in the Old Testament where news is delivered and it's bad news. It usually is used in the Old Testament for something good, but it doesn't require that. So, Ahimehaz wants to deliver news which he thinks is good. The Lord has delivered you, David, from the hand of your enemies. That's good news. That's what he thinks he's carrying. But Joab says, you're not going to go. And I put in there, this is too dangerous. And by being too dangerous, what I mean by that is Joab knows what happened when a Amalekite delivered news to David that King Saul and his son Jonathan were slain in battle. And when David heard that story, you'll read about it in the very first chapter of 2 Samuel. When David heard that story, David said, what made you think, because the Amalekite finished off King Saul. King Saul was probably mortally wounded. He was, and King Saul, being mortally wounded, asked the Amalekite, said, put me out of my misery. I'd rather, I'd rather you just put me out of my misery than for me to fall into the hands of the Philistines. Just kill me now. And he did. And then the Amalekite took the king's crown, and I don't remember if it was an armband or something, he took it and he brought it to David who he I presumably knew was the anointed king who would succeed King Saul. And David eventually said, what made you think this was a good idea? To kill the Lord's anointed. That wasn't your place to do it. And he had that messenger slain. And Joab knows this. So what I'm suggesting is, I think Joab, in an act of kindness, is looking out for him as. This is the priest's son. He's a, I'll say he's a bright young lad. He's full of uh, eagerness, exuberance. He means well, but Joab knows better. And so Joab prevents him from delivering this news. And then Joab commissions a Cushite to run instead. And he tells him, go tell the king what you've seen. It's actually go, uh, it could be translated, go report to the king what you've seen. He doesn't actually use the word news. In other words, just so there's no uh, ambiguity, I just want you to go and kind of tell it uh, very neutral. You're not trying to shade it as this is something uh, good or bad. You just tell what you know. Tell what you've seen. A Kushite is, would be an African from southern Egypt or modern-day Sudan, uh, probably somebody's servant, slave. He commissions him to go, the Kushite, is off. Off like a rabbit. Next, what happens? Ahimehaz still wants to go. So he appeals to Joab a second time. And he says, come what may. I know, it, I know you think it's dangerous. I know you're concerned for me, but come what may, let me go. And Joab says, why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? You're not going to get a reward for this. Don't kid yourself. Uh, it's not going to be received well, is what Joab is saying. And he says then the second time, come what may, let me go. And so Joab says, all right, you can go. And I think he lets him go because he thinks the Cushites already had a good head start. Uh, by the time you come around, it'll all be over and it won't make any difference. But Ahimehaz takes the longer route, but the easier route. 
I think the Cushite goes directly through all those cracks and crevices, brooks and rocks and trees, and he's climbing over things, and he actually arrives after Ahimahaz, which I don't think Joab imagined would take place. So that's the first part of the story. The second part of the story is in verses 24 to 32, and it unfolds very slowly, piece by piece, just a little bit of information at a time, as it all is building to a very climactic moment, which is kind of interesting because when David's troops which were organized under three commanders as he split his thousands of troops into three different battalions or whatever you want to call it. And, and they go head-to-head against Absalom's larger civilian army. That all comes together, and in two verses, it's like it's over. King David won, and the Israelites are headed for the hills. The author isn't terribly interested in giving us a lot of detail there. But for David to receive the news... It is slow and methodical. Let me read those verses for you. As soon as I turn my page, it goes like this. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king. And the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gate and said, See, another man is running alone. The king said, He also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He's a good man. And he comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, All is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came. And the Cushite said, it says good news, but there's no good in Hebrew. It just says, the Cushite said, news for my lord the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all those, or all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my Lord the King and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And then we'll read David's reaction, which you probably already know about. But let's go through this story. As it unfolds, and the author clearly wants wants this drama to build. He's really accentuating what will be David's grief at the end of this chapter. It starts off, David is sitting and waiting. The watchman is standing and looking. And the watchman sees a man running alone. And he calls out to David and lets him know. It's an alert. I see a man. He's running. He's running alone. And David says, if he's alone, there's news in his mouth. He's got something to tell us. It's a report. What does it mean? I think I have a question on here. What would it mean if he were not alone? What does he mean when David says, if he's alone, there's news in his mouth? What would it mean if he weren't alone? If he weren't alone, what it would mean is that David's troops were defeated in battle and they're running for safety. They're fleeing the battle. Uh, It's really, I don't have the verse on there, but if you look at verse 16, when David's army defeated Absalom's army, and in verse 16 it reads, Then Joab blew the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel. For Joab restrained them. David's army won. Absalom's army lost. Absalom was slain. So all those that were part of Absalom's army, what are they doing? They're running back home. They're running for safety. And so they're not going to see one guy coming back home. They're going to see dozens or hundreds of people running back home. They lost. They're trying to flee the battle. 
That's not what David sees. Well, David doesn't see anything. That's not what the watchman sees. He doesn't see all of David's troops running back home because they just got whooped. He sees one man running alone. And David says, there's news in his mouth. Second question, is David anticipating good news? I think it's too soon to say that. I think David knows that it's not a worst-case scenario. Since it's only one man running alone and there's news in his mouth, it's not, we just lost, we just got whooped. He's got something to say. How good it is, is to be determined. He's got news about the battle. He's got a report. That's where we start. Next. The watchman sees a second man running alone, and David says he also brings news. So now we've got a, it's not just one wild-eyed guy that maybe is, um, is going to exaggerate the truth or really doesn't know the whole story. Now truth is going to be confirmed by, by two messengers, two runners, and they will be able to collaborate the message, the news, the story, the report. Two messengers. And so David says he also brings news. Next piece of the puzzle. From what he sees, from what the watchman sees, he says, he says uh, the first runner, I think it's Ahimehaz. I have no idea how he knows that. Maybe uh, it's the way that he runs, a certain stride. I started watching Premier League soccer some years ago, which I really like, and Liverpool's my team, and it's kind of a joke how it all got started, but I started watching quite religiously, and I thoroughly enjoy it. But I can tell you, when I first started watching soccer, uh, my team Liverpool, it took me a little while to identify who was who. Like, they just, the, the camera angles pulled back far enough. You're not really sure a lot of times who's who, but once you've started watching and they become your team, you know exactly who's who. I, I can tell who's, who's, who's playing the ball, who's where, where they're at. You just identify those things. This watchman sees the first guy running, and for however, however he's able to do it, he calls to the king and says, it looks to me like Ahimehaz. I'm pretty sure it's Ahimehaz. And David says, he's a good man, and he comes with good news. Now, that's a big, that's a big development in the story, because now it's not just news. Now, he said, David says, uses the adjective, he's a good man, and he's not just bringing news, he's bringing good news. And he uses the word good. So now, there was always a little bit of ambiguity as to what this report was going to be like. Now, David is like, this is good news. I know him as, and the fact that he's coming to tell me something, it is good news. So our summary to this point, our conclusions, number one, King David thinks Ahimehaz brings good news. That's clear. Point number two, Ahimehaz thinks he brings good news. Because he's going to tell him, the Lord has delivered you from the hand of your enemies, those who rose up against you. Ahimaaz thinks it's good news. David is anticipating good news as it slowly develops. Next piece of the puzzle. Ahimaaz cries out to the king, all is well. That's not the full report. Now it's something more than the watchman says, I see the guy, I see a guy. Now I see a second guy. And now the, the first guy's close enough. I think it's Ahimaaz. But now it's not just what somebody sees. Now the runner is within earshot. Ahimaaz can cry out as he's running. He doesn't give the whole report. But as he's running, he cries out, All is well! Which is really interesting because it's translated by three words in our English Bible. He says one word, which would be a lot easier to holler out if you're, you know, you're running and you want to give the first heads up. What's the headline? And the headline is so interesting. The one word he cries out as he's running, he's not arrived yet. The one word he shouts out is, Shalom! Shalom! Which is, I mean, that's a great translation. Shalom means all is well. This is a great situation. Everything's whole. All is well. Shalom! That's what he cries out. But after crying that out, David's got to wait for the details. He didn't arrive. He just cries out as he's running, Shalom! And David's like, oh, this is good news. This is really good news. And he's running, he's coming closer. 
He arrives before the king. He falls down before the king. He delivers the news. And David says, Is it shalom with the young man Absalom? Again, my Bible says, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Which is, I mean, that's a translation. But he uses the exact same word that he cried out. Shalom. He says, "Is it okay, all is well, but what about is all well with the young man Absalom? And again, I, I find it very telling he refers to Absalom as the young man. I think that's all part of the estrangement. Uh, the lack of closeness, the not being reconciled. Is it Shalom with the young man Absalom? And Absalom lies right through his teeth. And some commentators, well, maybe he didn't know. Maybe his report is right that, you know, there was a lot of commotion. He's not sure what happened. That is completely not true. I can't buy that at all. Joab said, he's dead. Joab told Ahimehaz, the king's son is dead. He knows the king's son is dead. So what just happened there that Ahimehaz, all of a sudden, hems and haws, has nothing to say, and he lies. I think what happened is that Ahimehaz thought he was bringing news that the king would rejoice over, and all of a sudden, when the king asked the question, is it shalom with the young man Absalom, and he sees his face, and he sees his, his fear, he sees what's in his eyes, all of a sudden he realizes, this isn't what I thought it was. And I don't know if he fears for his own safety, or he just doesn't want to be the one to break the news, but all of a sudden, he's got nothing to say even though he knows exactly what, to, what is, the answer to the question is. He realizes now, I think, David is, cares a lot more for his, for his son Absalom than what he ever believed could possibly be true based upon the fact that David has been estranged from his son for nine years. I mean, I've got a, you know, our family's got a, I've, I've mentioned lots of times my family's messed up. We're still messed up. Uh, not my immediate family kids, but some of my extended family. And, you know, one of my, yeah, one of my, uh, you know, my brother who lives in Decatur hasn't spoken to me since March, you know, because of the family stuff going on since my mom passed away almost two years ago. Uh, I, can, I can appeal to him directly with a question and no response. If I, if I, have any, if I want to know anything, just direct it to my lawyer. And I get very little from the lawyer as well as we try to figure out estate things. Uh, so I, I'm estranged from, my, from one of my brothers, but the good news is my other brother in Florida, we've been reconciled. Like things are, I mean, we were estranged through family situation, and, and now that's all bridged, and, and there's been healing, and we, we call it a miracle. When we got the news last summer, my wife and I were really in tears, and we're like, this is a miracle. I never thought that day would happen. So... Um, Sometimes circumstances, they work for the better, or sometimes they work for the worse. It can, it can work both ways. But David's been estranged not for like nine months like me, ten months like me. It's, I'm talking nine years. So Ahimehaz did not see this coming. David says, step aside, let the second man give his report. <clears throat> the Cushite arrives next. He says, news for my lord the king. For the Lord has delivered you. And he gives basically the same message that Ahimehaz has already delivered. In his initial report, there's nothing new. It's what David already knows. It's what Ahimehaz has already said. But then he gets the same question Ahimehaz has got. And the question is, is it Shalom with the young man Absalom? The young man. And this time he gets an answer. It's the answer that Ahimehaz could have given but he knew, he thought differently or thought better of it. And the Cushite tells David, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. Is it well? Is it shalom with the young man? May they be like that young man. And in the context of everything that's just transpired, David knows exactly what he just, he knows exactly what was just told him. And so... The last part of the story, David's consumed by his grief. Verse 33, And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, the young man Absalom, the young man, the young man. 
Would I have died instead of you, O Absalom, the young man, the young man? All of a sudden, it's not the young man, it's his son. Which a part of, it, part of King David, it was always in his heart that that was his son. He just wasn't reconciled and he couldn't bring himself to call him his son. And now that he's dead, he calls him my son my five times. I can tell you, David has grieved deeply before in Scripture. David is a man uh, not aloof from his emotions. He was very much in touch with, with his emotions. Uh, most of the Psalms, the majority of the Psalms were written by David. He knew heights of praise and depths of what he felt like was abandonment. David was no stranger to his emotions. When David received news that King Saul and his, his son, which was David's best friend, Jonathan, that they had been slain in battle, David wrote a lament for them. And he weeped and, and wept and grieved the loss of King Saul and his best friend David. When Joab, his commander, slew Abner, another commander, he wept for King Abner and grieved and lamented him as well. When David's first son by Bathsheba died in infancy, David was weeping. David is a man who knows emotions. But this is emotion that's at a deeper level yet. Nowhere in Scripture has David felt the depths of the emotion in this case. Why? Why is it different? And I think the answer is, at least what I'm persuaded by, I think the answer is David knows all of this are part of the consequences of his own sinful choices. It's just what Nathan the prophet told him. This trouble is going to follow your household because you disregarded and disobeyed the word of the Lord. Just like Joab disobeyed and disregarded your word about the young man Absalom. And David knows these are consequences that he's sown into the lives of his family members, though they are wholly responsible for their own choices. But David knows, in some sense, he's responsible. Um, that word died is, is interesting, not because of what it means etymologically, like in the Hebrew language, but I've always kind of looked at that as when David says, would that I have died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. I always took that as uh, David saying, you know, my son Absalom died in the battle. I wish I had been the one to die instead. But I don't think that captures really what he's saying. I think what David's saying is, I wish when I had sinned against the Lord my God and slept with a wife, a woman that wasn't my wife and then had her husband killed, I wish the Lord had taken my life based upon my sin rather than seeing that consequence played out in, the, in my son's life. I think he's referring back to his own sin in chapter 11. I think it fits the context a lot better. So there's a few lessons from all of this. Well, Alexander McLaren also says, not only is David lamenting his own sinful past, that he's sown that pattern into the lives of his, of his own family, but David also, make sure I get the words right, David weakly indulged Absalom. That is, Absalom was going off the rails and David never stopped it. David never made the effort to be reconciled to his son. He never reached out to his son when he might have. Now the lessons from this. The first lesson is one we did back in October when we were at Faith. This was one of the lessons we got out of this story, is that there comes a time when it's too late to make an effort at forgiveness and reconciliation. The time, I mean, you can't make somebody be reconciled to you. But so far as it's within you, your desire ought to be for reconciliation and for forgiveness to take place. There should never be, the, in, the, in the life of a Christian, say, I've had enough, I've had my fill, it's off the table, I'm not interested in reconciliation. If you're a Christian, because I would never want God to treat me that way. I would never want God to say, look, I have... I have gifted you with scripture. I've gifted you with Christian people in your life. I've, gifted, I've given you all these advantages, but you just keep sinning, so I'm done with you. Forget it. You're out of the kingdom of heaven. I would never want God to do that to me. And so by the same token as a Christian, no matter what I've experienced, I should always be open to reconciliation and forgiveness. I gave you a quote from the Interpreter's Bible 
when we did this lesson in October. I'm going to share that quote again because I think it so aptly captures what David might have done. It reads like this. What David should have done depended alike upon his admitting his own sin to his sons and sharing with them both the discipline and the forgiveness he had himself received. David, like every parent, is meant to be a mediator of the justice and mercy of God, which they, as sinners themselves, have also received. That's a parent's job. To, to somehow communicate, I, I am a sinner worthy of death, but God in His grace and His mercy has reached me. But sometimes there's consequences to sin that are very apparent. And you share some of that life experience and you build that into your children. Because none of us are perfect. We're not, we don't want to be so legalistic we become self-righteous and think, well, if we just dot the right I's and cross the right T's, we will be guaranteed a certain outcome. It doesn't work like that. There are no guarantees like that in life. The guarantee is God and His Word. That's the guarantee. In spite of difficulty or in spite of circumstances. But as a parent, we sow into our children principles of justice and mercy which in some sense shouldn't be hard because we have experienced both justice and mercy as well. But at the end of the day, as a Christian, what I pray or what I believe, the promise I cling to, is God's grace is greater than my sin. And His mercy triumphs even over His justice. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two is a parallel lesson. It is that the human condition is such that we all struggle to strike a proper balance between love and justice. This is really easy to figure out. It's easy to, uh, to recognize, and once you have the principle in your head, you can see it play out lots of different ways. Let me give you some examples of maintaining or uh, striving for a proper balance between love and justice. In parenting, David didn't balance those well. David didn't extend justice and address sinful situations like he ought to have. But there are plenty of examples in Scripture of other people that didn't extend uh, love like they should have. There's There's a balance. Somewhere in the midst of that, there's this balance between disciplining your child and not extending mercy this time. You've sinned, you've disobeyed me, You disregarded my commandment, now here's the consequence, that's justice. There's other times a child may disobey and you extend mercy. You shouldn't have done that. Uh, Maybe maybe, uh, in addressing that, I'm believing that you're repentant, you're remorseful, you've promised not to do it again, and so in this case I extend mercy and forgiveness without a a certain consequence. It plays both ways. There's a balance there. We never perfectly arrive at that balance. You probably are more comfortable with one or the other. I mean, there's whole, a whole movement in parenting where it's all about only extending love and mercy, somehow believing that children never need principles of justice or consequences. I think both are true. And what exactly the proper balance is, I think we will strive for as long as we live. Let me give you a second example apply this, this uh, struggling between love and justice in your friendships. And by friendships, if I had enough room and just to add the word relationships, it's just a relational principle. The, the first passage in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8, it makes the statement, love covers a multitude of sins. We talk about that in our family. Love covers a multitude of sins. What that means is when... Uh, in a family or a relationship, it could be a family, it could be a, a friendship. In a relationship, because people are people, they will disappoint you and they will hurt you. They just will. But if there's this attitude, this prevailing foundation of love, love covers a multitude of sins. Uh, you can let it go, you can be forbearing, you can be merciful, you don't have to address it, it doesn't ruin the friendship. Love covers a multitude of sins. But in a, in a not a good situation, but it may be inevitable, I'm not saying it, it shouldn't happen, there can sometimes come a point where somebody keeps doing the wrong thing and hurting you, and it's like, I'm not going to keep, 
I can't keep extending mercy. We've got, we've got to look at justice here. I mean, this is wrong. I, I can't keep letting this happen and being hurt and me being ruined by it. And so love is now not the prevailing thing. Now it becomes the justice. Doesn't mean I'm not open to forgiveness and reconciliation, that I'm not open to trying to make things right. But now what's going to rule that relationship is, are not these principles of mercy, but it's going to really be more justice. Uh, this plays out like, say, in a, in a, in a marriage that's struggling. Okay, Sometimes, when couples get together, when I do premarital counseling, it's like when they need it the least. Okay, they are so romantically inclined to one another. Everything is so wonderful. Even the little things, oh, you know, those little things that somebody else might find annoying, I find them so unique. I mean, who else is like that? And then so many years into the marriage, it's like, and I'll tell you another thing. You bite your nails. You know, and why do you wear those, that style of clothes? All those little things that love covers a multitude of sins, all of a sudden they become deal breakers. They become these stumbling blocks. You know, this hurts me, I don't like it. And somehow we struggle between this stuff of, of what is loving and you can overlook it as no big deal and justice, you know, this, this needs to be addressed. We struggle with that. I've got the Acts 15 passage where... Uh, Paul and Barnabas had gone on their first missionary journey. John Mark had gone too. He abandoned them. And now, a couple years later, they're getting to go out on the second missionary journey. And Barnabas says, John Mark's coming with us. He's changed. He's a good man. Love covers a multitude of sins. We can do this. Paul says, "Uh uh-uh. Justice. He abandoned us. It hurt us. It hurt the work of the gospel. I'm reading into the story, but that was their two positions. And so they split. Because one, Paul was more of a justice guy in this situation. Barnabas was more of a love guy in this situation. And the missionary team split. Now there were two missionary parties because they went their separate ways. That's how it plays out and it can look differently. Uh, Let me apply it to a church situation. In church, love covers a multitude of sins. That's why I've been here so long. Uh, if love didn't cover a multitude of sins, I would have been thrown out the door a long time ago because I still sin. I still make bad decisions. I can, I can do things that I regret later, but it, it happened, and love covers a multitude of sins, at least to this point. Uh, and that should be the prevailing attitude in church. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there comes a point where Paul says to the, to the church at Corinth, You are proud of the fact that a man is living an immoral lifestyle and you're not addressing it. And Paul says, let's not call this love covers a multitude of sins. Let's call this what it is. It's sin and it needs addressed. And you need to turn that man over to Satan to save his soul. And so the church does. They apply principles of justice. As they should. Because their love had become too tolerant of sin. You read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But then the man repents. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says, all right, enough is enough. You did what you ought to have done. Now extend forgiveness to the man. Welcome him back into the fellowship and into the community. Because there's always a balance between the two. One doesn't always win the day, nor should it. Love isn't always the answer, although you could argue that when you apply principles of justice, it's because you love. That's really the underlying motive. If you really love somebody as God would have you to love them, you will do sometimes the hard thing. It's it's the old parent adage, this hurts me a lot more than it hurts you. And it's true. I, I mean, I could spank my kids when I had to. One of them in particular... Not Ryan. You want to take your 50-50 shot? <laughs> but I'd pr- I'll tell you what, I could hardly spank a grandchild. I don't think I've ever... <laughs> Although I, I think one of them, I did give a little... There's been a couple little incidents, but uh, that's pretty rare. I mean, it's, it's hard not to just be completely on the love track with your grandchildren. It's just a different story. But at any rate, you get the idea. Comments or questions? Yes. Touched on at the end, but my initial question was that in 
Yes. I th well, well, oh yeah, like a fatalism. Yeah. Oh, right, right. I think what he could have done is what the interpreter's Bible said to do. But I also think, you know, if, if I mean, I don't believe God gives direct revelation today. I think his, his revelation is through his word. Okay, so our situation is a little bit different today. Uh, in spite of the fact that I got a letter this week in the mail uh, from somebody I know whose child, couple kids used to come to Good News Club long time ago, and uh, he's speaking somewhere tonight, and it's all about his vision of the Holy Ghost, and the Holy Ghost was traveling in the car with him, and he's got video, and I'm like, interesting. But at any rate, that's, 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 a, that's another story. But let's, David's a great example. No. Who, who was it that was a great example? There's some example in Scripture that's escaping me now where you receive a hard word from the Lord, and if you throw yourself on the mercy of the Lord, you may receive then a follow-up message that's different. Okay? There's a, who is that? Um, yeah, but that's not the one I'm thinking of. Uh, has a, yeah, it's, I'm sure it's in the Gospels, uh, but I can't remember what it is. Like when, when, here's one that didn't play out like it could have. Jesus told Peter, when Peter said, though all others forsake you, you can count on your man Peter. Like, I don't care, I can't speak to the other 11, they're iffy. But you can count on your man Peter. And the, Peter said, before the cock crows, what, two, three times, whatever, twice, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times that you know me. I think the one thing Peter could have done is said, oh, Christ, may it never be. And thrown himself at the mercy of Christ and received grace and that that wouldn't have happened. There is an example like that in Scripture, but I can't remember which one it is, which is kind of sad because it would make the point better. Uh, so I think David, I don't think David had to resign himself. Well, the prophet said it was going to happen. There's nothing I can do about it. I think, I think he might have lived faithfully in light of that message and prayed upon the mercy and the grace of God. Oh, actually, another example would be Later on in 2 Samuel, if we were to go there, but we're not. But if we were, David numbers the, the army, the people of Israel, a, 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 the whole army, and Joab says, don't do it. The Lord has told kings, don't number your army, because your strength is not in horses, it's not in military, it's not in your men. Trust the Lord. So Joab is tries to talk David out of it. David wants to know, I want to know how big the army is. And so David numbers the army, numbers the people. And the Lord says, the Lord's angry at him and says, you have three choices. And he gives him, here's, here's the consequence for your disobedience. He gives him three choices. And David's, David, in given these three choices, David says, how can I choose? I'm going to throw myself upon the mercy of God, whatever God decides. And God says, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to send through a, a, a slain angel who will who will slay people, I don't know if it's for three days or something, and, and that's how, that's the judgment. And he threw himself on the mercy of God. And, and in doing that, as the angel is, and David's praying, and I think he's, he's torn up about it, and then the Lord relents, and what he said he would do, it's actually relented. The Lord is merciful. He doesn't bring all of the judgment to bear that he said he would bring to bear. I think that's the solution. Uh, so, when David was told by Nathan, here are the consequences, I think David, as he did, he received it humbly and rightfully. He understood the consequence. His sin was put away, but it would have ramifications. I think if he'd lived in that forgiveness and in experiencing both the justice and the love of God in that situation and conferred that to his own family and kids, I think things might have been better. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not advocating that change what scripture Right. I don't think you were. Right. Right. We will, we will always, the word struggle is not an accidental word. We will always struggle to strike a proper balance. You will never attain a proper balance. The only one who maintains the proper, perfect balance between love and justice is God in the giving of his own son on the cross. A perfect balance between love and justice. Uh, Cindy? Um, so, both for God's mercy and for 
Yeah. Right. He didn't. Because there's no formula that guarantees that outcome. God is sovereign in the disposal of his uh, justice and his mercy. Yeah. He might, but that was David's only hope. David's only, David's only hope was not to, well, he said the baby was going to die, so just get on with life. He knew that God in his mercy might relent from what he said would take place. But that would be God's prerogative, not David man, manipulated that out of God. Yeah, because there's no formula. Joash, did you have something too? Yeah. That's, that's probably fair. That's probably fair. Yeah, which I, I agree, I've said that as well, so I think ideally my screen would be better. Yeah. Uh, the, I think I've got, I mean, the story we're not going to do, although I tinkering with maybe I would do it a little bit more next week, is the prodigal son story, the mercy and the justice in that story. I think it would be really interesting to think in these categories and apply it to that story, but I don't think that's what I'm going to do next week. Uh, we know there was, there was mercy... And, and this lavishness of the love from the father to his prodigal son who comes back home, was there justice? Um, I think there was. It'd be interesting to play that out. But what we're going to do to close is uh, we're going to sing another song on the stereo. It's uh, How Deep the Father's Love. And as you sing this song, pay attention to how God has both extended mercy and satisfy justice in how deep the Father's love. Because while we receive mercy in Christ, Christ bore the brunt of the rightful justice and holiness of God in punishing sin. Uh, You can stay seated. How deep the Father's love.